Welcome to Innovation, a place where I discuss the world of business, innovation, technology, and beyond with a rotating crew of industry experts and mainstays. Enjoy. We are taping this on a Wednesday, July 12th. Uh, we've taken a little bit of a break um, connected to the long July 4th weekend, but we are back. Um, before we start this podcast, we'd like to ask every single one of our listeners to uh, please uh, leave us a kind review. Uh, you can do that on Stitcher. You can do that on Google Play. You can do that through your Apple uh podcast app that comes uh, with with your phone. Uh, it's really, really helpful that everyone does that. Um, just leave us a review, any kind of review. If you have any comments or questions, leave them in there. Any any advice, ways in which we can improve. It's, it just makes it very, very helpful for all of us. And at the same time, for us to um, reach the spotlight section of, of Apple Podcasts. So with that, we're going to kick it off. We are joined today by a really cool guest, someone that speaks my language and I speak his. So I'm um, really happy about that. Vlad Eidelman, welcome to Intonation. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So Vlad, um, what do you do? Uh, that's a great question. So the, um, the basics of it are that I lead the research team at Fiskonote, which is a startup here in D.C., a tech startup. Um, but I think that um, it really takes a, a step back to go uh, and figure out how I got here before we figure out what we do here. So um, originally, I, I was born in St. Petersburg in Russia, and then we immigrated over to the U.S., and I was really always fascinated and interested in um, what I think I, in retrospect, now could call the intersection of, of computer science and specifically AI with the uh, sort of philosophical underpinnings uh, of what it means to understand the world around us and, and how we understand the world around us. And so what that's done for me is led me through uh, through college where I started um, in undergrad to, to do research with uh, the AI faculty um, at Columbia where I went to school. And that led me through a number of research opportunities in undergrad and then eventually to go straight into my PhD um, at Maryland where I really got into natural language processing, which is sort of the, the field of understanding uh, automatically trying to, in computationally, understand and generate potentially human language, so, you know, French, German, English, uh, and by means of machine learning. So the tools we use are usually statistical tools uh, where we consume a lot of data, usually in textual form, and then try to build a system that is able to perform some task off of this language. So I was really fascinated by the intersection of, again, this philosophical underpinnings of semantics and understanding the language and how we can do interesting and useful things for society with it. So as I was wrapping up my PhD, I, uh, I was looking at opportunities and, and one that stood out for me a lot was Fiskonote because it sort of combined this computational social science, which was a really interesting interdisciplinary field of, of combining sort of this, uh, computer science with applications to different social science aspects, and in particular here, political science. So, so what we do here is, is really this fascinating intersection of where I've sort of been going my whole life, although that sounds very, very trite. So tell me, let's go, let's do a deep dive into Fiscal Note and its mission, because um, 
nowadays there's um you know politics are all over the place as we know um right or wrong but independent of the newspaper headlines there are, there's a lot of there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into managing uh, this country into creating policy into um, measuring policy evaluating it and I think that um, your uh, company helps in that respect so why don't we do a deep dive into fiscal note its mission um, its goals its you know its its it, all the all the things that it provides to the general public and to organizations outside. Absolutely. So I think you, you really hit it on there. Um, I would even expand it and say government impacts all of our lives every day, whether we, we realize it or not. You know, when we're you know, seeing a speed sign or we're going to a restaurant and it has a rating from A to you know, C and we decide whether we eat there. Those are all decisions that we make based off of, of policy that was made at the local, state or federal level. Right. So it's just really kind of the structure with which, with, within, within which we live. Uh, and so um, we basically exist as a company because uh, of this recent trend, more or less recent, of, of open data where um, the government and other institutions that are related to you know, the public good are, are really starting to publish all of the, um, either the preliminary sort of data that they're thinking about or the exhaust of the actual work they do. And we really try to aggregate it and make it useful. So the, the sort of core mission of Fisco Note is to help organizations, big, small, um, private, non, uh, or public, um, make sense of all of this information that's coming out of different levels of government and different jurisdictions. So we started off in the U.S., and we primarily collected state and federal data. Mm -hmm. And with that, we, we really launched our core product, which was a software as a service. As a technology company, we deliver a software product uh, online where uh, a company will log in and be able to work, essentially, on the policy issues that they care about that influence their organization. And so where the interesting technology comes into play is first sort of running through our stack is uh, figuring out where the data we need is coming from, you know, figuring out all the different sites and locations online or offline where we need to understand and get that data, how frequently, how often, what are the permission settings. Then once we ingest it, helping to structure it, to understand what's in it, to validate so all of these open data transparency initiatives that different governments have have been fantastic for us and allow us to exist. Uh, but the flip side is that the, the fact that they're so um, sometimes underdeveloped and even though the data might be out there, it's not very accessible or it's not machine readable yeah. are also a, a significant factor in allowing us to exist. Because if the government was putting out all this data and it was completely transparent and accessible and everyone understood what it was, you know, that would uh, somewhat diminish the, the need for, for us at least at that first step of aggregating and normalizing the data. Um, but once we have it, that's where we, I think we really come in and we shine in trying to help analyze um, different aspects of what's important. So for a given policy that comes out, say there's a new law that's introduced or proposed law that's introduced in Illinois that's going to provide some subsidies for education or after-school programs, you know, we need to figure out immediately, well, who of our clients needs to know about this? How should they react? Who are the people sort of responsible? Who, who are the influencers? Who are the, or um, what are the next steps that someone will need to take? So all of these processes are, are traditionally handled by a government affairs office, legal affairs office, regulatory affairs, compliance, public affairs. So uh, different organizations structure themselves differently, um, but all of them are looking for ways in which they can become more efficient 
and either help the people that they have work better or understand whether they need to outsource something to a law firm, for instance, or an outside consulting firm. Uh, and those all are resources and they cost money. And so um, what we've tried to do is to help automate some of that process in ways that really empower the user's workflow um, outside of you know what they traditionally have been used to doing. So you mentioned the federal and state, that's where you started. Um, mm -hmm. Being very familiar with federal, I know that um, we we undertook a, a big challenge over the past couple of years while I was there, where we try to make as as much data accessible, not only accessible but but also machine readable, and that took quite a bit because our first jump was just to make data accessible. Absolutely. Um, and then everybody thought everybody that was a, a, a non technologist thought, okay, well the data's out there. We've won. <laughs> We've won the war. Congratulations. Yeah. And I and we we kept saying no. We we haven't won anything actually. Um, <laughs> we we literally we just prepped up the battlefield. Now now we yeah. got to make it machine readable. We got to make the data valid and reliable. Is it valid and reliable before we make it machine readable? And there were a lot of issues with that, uh, with the taxonomy yeah. associated with it. And then from Absolutely. there. You know, we've we took on the challenge of making as much data machine readable as possible. The reason why I bring that is because um, I know Fiscal Note really leverages um, machine learning, and as you mentioned in in your training, your craft natural mm -hmm. language processing at the core of its product and AI. So, where does how does that kick in? How how does that um, kind of like turbocharge the data and, and then in return, make it make it shine uh, for your customers? How does it empower your customers? You know, in other words, once there's, it's a two prong question. One is the, the backend piece that I asked. And then the, the other half is mm -hmm. what's that, what's that thing that you provide your customers that just nobody else has because of it? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. Uh, so basically, we have a, uh, as you pointed out, sort of the internal tools that we're helping to develop and the internal tools. So starting off with the internal tools, once we have data coming in from different aspects or portions of the government, um, we need to verify that it's clean, that it's valid, that it's uh, structured in a way that makes it useful for someone. So uh, when we talk about structured data, what that usually means is that there's some pieces of, of metadata or information, or there's some columns, if you want to picture in a Excel spreadsheet, that people have sort of already defined for us, and we know what to expect. So a date is usually one where we know a date of, of documents when they're published. Maybe an author is another. And when we talk about unstructured data, that usually means for us, it's a free-flowing document. It's a piece of text where you and I look at it, we see words, we see you know meaning, but for a machine, there's, there's really no that concept like that. So um, the first thing we try to do is is run a standard set of algorithms that we've developed here in-house that pull out aspects of that unstructured free flow of text that will help us to understand who that document is relevant for uh, and how it relates, and that's really important, how it relates to all of the other data that we have. So that's sort of another uh, tangent I don't want to go on right now, but the, um, the fact that there's so much data means that there's a lot of silos usually where yeah. we're collecting from silos, where people are usually storing in silos. And one of the crucial aspects I think that differentiates us uh, and allows us to supercharge some of that workflow is uh, creating these relationships between different documents, between different uh, 
policies that are not evident, that are not part of the metadata, that are not out there for people to just see uh, using this machine learning internally. So as an example, um, part of the sort of standard uh, federal workflow is that uh, once a, a bill is enacted and it becomes law, then it becomes a public law, then it becomes part of the uh, no, the statute, the U.S. Code, and then it might promulgate some regulations, and then those become part of the U.S. Code, Administrative Code, and all of those uh, may or may not contain citations to the different sections that they relate to and how they were sort of given authority to exist, um, but they might have a proper name, they might have, you know, the Affordable Care Act, they might mention mm -hmm. Obamacare, even though that's not the proper name, they might have the actual statute citation, they mm -hmm. might have different formats of it, so all of those are, and that's a fairly simple application, but all of those are things that take time right now for someone to actually look through, you know, traditionally look through and figure out what documents sort of traced to one another. Uh, another great example, I think, is is sort of this um, uh, process of, of incorporating different aspects of one piece of policy into another. So there's, at the federal level, again, you know, only a few policies that usually make it all the way through. And so people usually try to incorporate a lot of their own amendments or bills into that one vehicle that's moving through right now. And this happens at the state level and local as well. So part of that, again, internal process when we get data is to figure out the similarities between different sections within a document, even not even the whole document, but you know, are there paragraphs or sections of this bill or the whole bill that's been incorporated somewhere else so we can draw that relationship immediately and say, hey, these two things are reintroductions or companions or they're uh, sort of trying to instill or put part of this into here. So if the, you know, if the, TARP Act was relevant to you last year. Now this contains portions of what was in that before, and you, know, you should take a look at this. So all of these things are uh, internal. And then once we get to the external, that's where we really have to think carefully about um, how to apply AI. So there's a lot of really, really cool things that we could do uh, and a lot of cool features that we could build. But at the end of the day, the, the really important question we always ask is, does this enhance someone's workflow? And what that means is, you know, is it going to have a... Um, actionable result? Are they going to make a decision or are they going to uh, increase their efficiency or, or maybe uh, not spend as much time doing something uh, because of it? Because there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can do that might be you know, uh, cool, but not that useful. And I think we see a lot of that. Maybe we'll talk a little later about sort of general AI out there. There's a lot of cool stuff, but that, that's not necessarily that useful. So the things we have have been really focused on trying to improve people's uh, ability to do their job. So one is... Um, what we talked about, sort of identifying those relationships and connections. Mm -hmm. Another is trying to understand who and what organizations are going to be immediately impacted by a piece of policy. So that's not a trivial uh, you know, concern. So uh, if we're talking numbers, there's about 120 to 150,000 pieces of, of legislation uh, introduced a year sort of at the state level. You know, federal, you know, at, we add a couple, you know, 10, 15,000. And then local, we're talking, you know, again, uh, many thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, and then we're starting to incorporate international data sets. So if you're a, a company that's operating or an organization that's operating in a few different you know, states or jurisdictions, that's a pretty large volume of yeah. information that's coming at you that you need to parse out very quickly to figure out is something relevant or not. Because again, if we're talking at the state level, most of these state level sessions are you know, maybe a couple months long. There's a few exceptions. Um, but you need to figure out quickly whether you need to fly over to a state capital and, and engage someone or figure out if you need to position yourself to be in compliance with a new law. Uh, and again, so we talked at the federal level, most things don't actually become law, so you don't have to be as active. But at the state level, they're very active. Most of the state legislatures are, you know, controlled by one party with maybe even a governor aligned. And mm -hmm. so, you know, they're 
passing 30, 40% of the legislation they're introducing. So there are significant impacts to sort of organizations uh, if they are not keeping in touch with it. So we have these sets of, of models that we've built out that are focused on the users themselves and their reactions to different pieces of policy on our platform. And you can think of them as, as recommendation engines that try to figure out you know, what's relevant to, to someone else or not. Uh, and that's a really um, well-studied field, so recommendations engines in general, mm-hmm. especially in consumer applications like Netflix or Amazon. Those are really powerful drivers for them. The, the reason it's interesting in the legal space, and for us especially, is it's set up uh, as a different problem. So, um, you know, if, if, you're am, if you're on Amazon and you're shopping for a product and you have a couple recommendations for, for different products, uh, that's probably a fairly low-risk decision for you. You know, uh, if I don't show you every single product, that doesn't mean that you are, you know, losing out uh, on a critical piece of your life, most likely. Whereas mm-hmm. if, if we miss um, a potentially impactful piece of legislation or regulation, uh, and we only show a company here the top 10 most likely ones and don't show them sort of the bottom 100, um, we are very likely to miss out on something that's important for them. And even one miss could mean potentially millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. of sort of, of loss. Yeah. And so the, this is a very interesting problem in the legal space where we need very high recall. We need to make sure we uh, try to find everything that's valuable or interesting or useful or impactful while also not inundating that person with a ton of irrelevant information. So that's a really, really hard problem that we've been studying and working on for a while. And we're getting closer uh, to, to being, I think, more efficient at it. And I think that's a really critical piece of the infrastructure. So, so the way that I, uh, I'm interpreting this, and, and it all makes sense to me, having been in, in government for, you know, the past six years is, you know, when we talk about the Amazon example. The Amazon example is, as a consumer, it's it's a collection. If we're if we're discussing economic theory here, it's a collection of of common goods, just just mm-hmm. common, you know, um, for the most part, uh, low cost goods, and that's that's the recommend the recommendation engine. With you guys, it's every every recommendation or every tracking is is a premium good but it's a premium good that is not is not one piece it could be a thousand pieces that make up that that single premium good that single recommendation that's been that's been combined right it's a it's a combination mm-hmm. of things that that makes it that so valuable so critical but at the same time as you mentioned you miss something that could mm-hmm. that could result in a in a you know, hundred thousand dollar loss opportunity, a million dollar, ten million dollar, hundred million dollar um, loss. So it's it's highly critical. Therefore, your your um, the requirement to to be on point all the time is is it that much higher, right? So that's I I kind of see it as that. I kind of see it as 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 a as a not so much as like one thing. It's kind of like a cluster that makes up this one premium good, which in return is that that recommendation or whatever you want to do it when you know if we were com, um, compared to Amazon so it's fascinating it's really really yeah. fascinating to me so then let's talk about the consumer um, from the consumer side so what are some of the key benefits and and um, competitive advantages that fiscal note offers that just nobody else can offer sure so so I think that comes back to um, trying to, again, uh, increase sort of the time or decrease the time that someone spends on the workflow. I think uh, a great example of, of something we, we offer uh, and as we sort of just relaunched is our um, 
really deep analysis of the regulatory process and specifically the notice and comment process. So for people who are unfamiliar, um, when a, uh, an agency such as the FCC, let's take that as an example, decides they want to issue a regulation, uh, they solicit input legally. You know, they have to solicit input from the public. Yeah. And the public, through various channels like regulations.gov and others, can respond. So you, I, you know, any organization can come in and basically tell FCC what we think about this proposal. And there can be millions of those, as the net neutrality example recently and the one before showed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time, um, you know, legitimately for uh, a lawyer might be to go through these comments from organizations and figure out what stance have they taken on the regulation. Uh, in order to figure out what is the final regulation going to look like after all of these comments are incorporated by the FCC. And that takes a lot of time. And what we've developed is, and this is probably our most um, sort of uh, intricate system, is analyzing all of these submissions, which are often pages long, legal, dense writing, and figuring out what is the stance that every commenter is taking. So say there's an organization that comments, say it's from, you know, uh, energy industry, uh, and it makes a comment asking for certain provisions. You know, we figure out, okay, are they supporting or not? Why are they supporting and not? What are the arguments they're using? And then figuring out, okay, what kinds of other organizations or other arguments have been made similar to those to try to figure out the coalitions and figure out the different themes that have been used. And that's a really interesting and, and sort yeah. of um, unique problem because if you compare it to sentiment analysis, which it sounds very similar to in some respects, you know, off of social media data or Twitter, uh, or Yelp reviews or Amazon, like that's a really interesting problem as well. Um, but oftentimes it's not as a, a difficult one because people are, are fairly open and transparent usually about what they're writing about. They're usually writing about one object. They're saying this, you know, I like it, I don't like it. What are the reasons for it? And there's multi-aspect sentiment analysis, uh, which is similar to. But this really takes it, I think, to a different level where a lot of the times the legal writing, especially for the uh, law firm that's been hired on behalf of an organization, is not meant to be very clear or transparent. Uh, it's not necessarily stating its positions as openly uh, in some respects as, as you would want. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, positioning and a lot of framing. Yep. So it's really interesting to go through all of that and figure it out. We, um, we dealt a yep. lot with the notice and comment um, period uh, at labor. It was... Um, Exhausting at times, but but required and necessary. And and you, it's f- interesting that you bring the FCC uh, up. You know, when we're discussing net neutrality, and today's a, a really big day for those that don't know. Uh, there's there's a it's it's the equivalent of uh, the digital street protests of sorts, where mm-hmm. there are a lot of very large companies that are protesting. Uh, what's going on uh, with with some propo- uh, proposed rule changes. The FCC itself, I think, recently issued um, uh, some communication saying that they are unable to distinguish whether a comment has been made by a bot or it's a real person, mm-hmm. um, and whether you know a comment is, you know is coming from the same person. A same person has has um, has submitted, let's say, three hundred comments, or a bot has submitted three hundred thousand comments. Um, or whether it's, it's an internet service provider employee has submitted 300 mm-hmm. comments. So they're unable to to distinguish. I'm not surprised because of how underfunded everything is in the federal government <laughs> and how, how obsolete most of the technology is and how we're not allowed to really embrace, or I say we are not, I'm no longer there, but we are not allowed to, to really uh, procure the very best technology uh, for mm-hmm. all kinds of reasons. So... Um, you know, they could use you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, so FCC is actually, uh, well, I, you probably know this, but 
they run their own analysis server yeah. for submissions yeah. of comments and display yeah. because they are actually um, relatively, I think, very uh, much better than a lot of the other agencies who who are uh, either relying on regulations like Gov, which is run through you know, the EPA, yeah. or or even um, don't have their online publishing. So I actually appreciate the FCC for for being so open and forward about uh, you know publishing and receiving and publishing comments. Uh, the adversarial part of of analysis and sort of that's that's a whole another topic for discussion, but it's very challenging to it's sometimes very, distinguish. It's yeah. very very challenging, and and it's and you know like we're, like you're saying, it's an agency can only do so much, right? So yeah. an, an agency can only do so much. An agency can, can is approaching this with kind of like an open heart, open mind, with with a, a solid back end, with the right policy approach, making sure that everything everything that they can cover is covered. But then a lot of the, let's say, um, a lot of the other things that could fuel the, the sorting and remove a lot of the internet trolls, mm -hmm. um, they're not allowed to use, right? right. So, so how can the, how can that get better any better if they're not allowed to use it because of God knows one how many reasons? So it's it's frustrating for them. It's it's frustrating Absolutely. for them, and it's frustrating for it should be very frustrating for for the rest of us as well. Uh, that's that are living in this country because then, then um, the FCC and other organizations are put in a really tough position, and that and a lot of, you know, a lot of not so nice things could happen. So, um, but I, I I wish them well. Look, I have a I have yeah. another very interesting question for you. Um, I want to talk about data driven analysis, especially you know, and I want to talk about a little bit more about machine learning and I want to talk a little bit about natural language processing. But let's start with the AI itself. AI mm -hmm. is a very hot topic. Um there's there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of fear. Okay. Yeah. A lot on both sides. I think it's fifty fifty right now. Probably more <laughs> fear than excitement. Okay. For 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 the tech nerds is very exciting. For the non-tech people, they're scared to death. My job's going to disappear. Um, why don't we, at least from your point of view, why don't we talk about these trends and opportunities and challenges for AI in the near term? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's so much attention being paid now to to AI and its various aspects. And I think that's both contributing to the, obviously, the, uh, the excitement as well as the misrepresentation of our current capabilities and even arguably right. our, our future capabilities. So I, I think one important point is that uh, public presentation of, of information, uh, hopefully this podcast excluded, but is often uh, misrepresentative, um, not on purpose, I'm not saying maliciously, yeah, yeah. Uh, but just for, for lack of, of sort of understanding or depth of the reporting um, in all fields, in all scientific fields. So I have friends in physics or medicine who, when I read an article and I forward it to them, I'm like, have you heard of this? They're like, don't, don't read that. Um, so I can only imagine, uh, and I, I do imagine sort of the, the skepticism uh, that some people should be reading or are reading sort of uh, machine learning or AI uh, publications or sort of public media outlets for. And so I think that uh, the reason it's important to, to note is that unlike other fields uh, like physics where there might be some discovery or something that's not necessarily presented in the right way, um, AI is actually impacting us every day as we sit here today and increasingly so. So people are paying attention to it. And I think they're taking away some messages that are not as uh, correct as what Agreed. I think we should be striving for. Agreed. So I, I think uh, one really important one 
um, that I, I see over and over is uh, the way that the results or, or sort of a, a project is presented. And, and it makes it seem like we've been creating or every day there's you know tons or at least dozens of articles every day that come out that say like AI now is able to do this or AI now is able to do that. Like we have a, for instance, for, from our domain, uh, let's say the legal domain, you know, one article comes out and says, you know, we can predict the Supreme Court judges and it says we can predict like EU regulatory judges. We can predict these judges. And it makes it seem like all of these are different models or we can predict how legislators are going to vote. Um, and it makes it seem like, well, we're just creating these new AI and they call them robots or automatons or anything in the middle. Uh, and it makes it feel like there's so much advancement and so much increasingly uh, knowledge of what's going on. Uh, when in fact, the reality is that most of the time, the algorithms we use, sort of that core, is not that different from one another. So everything that's running in production, well, not everything, a lot of the things that you have that are sort of machine learning based running in production systems, whether big companies or startups, are actually based off of a few core principles that are mm -hmm. mostly the same. Uh, and those algorithms have been around for a long time. So AI mm -hmm. isn't new. AI has yep. been around since at least the 50s as, as its core. And, and I think it's increasingly become you know, apparent uh, to people, but the, the core of the sort of the algorithms are actually not that innovative usually. You know, if you read the actual um, machine learning conferences and community, there you see some innovative new architecture setups, problems. But when it's sort of filtered down, uh, these all these different problems of predicting how legislators are going to vote or judges are going to vote, really the only thing that changes is the data. So it's sort of like the analogy I like is we, we've built a hammer. You know, a machine learning algorithm, yeah. like, a, like a linear model, is a hammer. Uh, we've gotten that. It's pretty solid. And then we just find a lot of different nails and we hit them. Um, but each nail that we hit doesn't actually give us more um, power in terms of understanding how to automate something. It just basically validates that this hammer is good at hitting a nail that looks like that. So given a, a data set that has some you know, properties, like it's fairly well representative and you have some labels that you trust, you can well pretty much well build a machine learning algorithm off of it. Uh, that's pretty established. Um, but I think that we could do a better job of, of presenting that to people. Um, yeah. So that said, yeah, sorry. No, no, I tell people, I, 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 and, and I'm glad that you're, you're explaining this um, a lot better than 99% of all, I'd say, uh, reporters or fear mongers out there. Because uh, the way I, that I tend to explain it to a lot of people is, look, think, think about a, a, um, think about a, a, a waste management plant, okay? So it's waste management. So these waste management technology yeah, has improved over the past 30, 40, 50 years, uh, 100 years. But there's some basic principles into waste management, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say water treatment specifically. And water is treated through some, through some, you know, let's say key pillars and those things don't change if anything they're enriched you know there's there's a better they're better parts better technology but but the key ingredients don't really change right. and and all that you know and, and as the population grows there's more and more water coming in so there's it needs to be it needs to be rerouted and done all kinds of things but this it's the same thing in this world where the the key different uh, differentiators here is that there's a lot more data there's a there, there's a lot more uh, you know valid reliable data stable data you know uh, machine readable data, and it just gel it connects to what you're saying. Not a whole lot has changed. Yeah, there's some you know more you know uh, I think the, some cutting edge approaches you know some things that are different that are more um, evolved, but it, it's been around for a long time. And I you know my my dear friend Vint Cerf. At Google, would tell you the same thing. You know, they, they, a lot of a lot of these things haven't changed. The key principles are the key principles. So, um, yeah. 
it's just that people tend to freak out and there's a lot of clickbait stuff out there too right so sure. uh you know it's um you know that this will end your job <laughs> click now <laughs> that's right and i think um it's important to note um touching on something we we had earlier that um a lot of these things that uh we can do with ai are really cool they're interesting yeah. they're neat um but the sort of the the core sort of opportunity and, and the question sort of coming back to that is are they solving a actual problem you know can can i use it to better myself or, or better my work or better my life and i think the answer right now for a lot of them is no like we're, we're basically validating that hey there's a lot of data we can use it you know it flows through the system well um but the the end result is not there and i think that's really the the opportunity for for businesses that are gonna have and i think um this is another i think trend uh it's not gonna be so much as it is today or the last you know five years where um you have a sort of a company that's touting itself as a deep learning company or an AI company. You're going to have companies that solve a problem and inherently you're going to expect that they're using the best available technology where most of the time that's probably going to have some machine learning components to it. Uh, but I think another aspect that's uh, sort of under talked about is the uh, prevalence of the traditional sort of rule-based systems that are still running uh, in a lot of core applications in business. So machine learning is great at solving uh, a large chunk of problems and even within that a, a sort of a chunk of the problem um, but oftentimes in a business application you're going to have a couple layers of, of business logic or other things on top of it to make sure it's not making those dumb mistakes that any human would catch and so yeah. um, I think people don't necessarily uh, get to see under that hood and, and they feel like everything is being t taken over when in fact we have a lot of room to both grow and still uh, develop and, and I think from from the actual research side, there's been a lot of great work recently, especially on, on deep learning. And that's also been, I think, misrepresented in the literature as a sort of this completely new thing. And sometimes at the worst, I see sort of machine learning versus deep learning. If you're not doing deep learning, you're not doing machine learning. And that's sort of the, the most uh, annoying thing, I think, one of the most things I see. Because deep learning is a, you know, a fantastic a tool in the arsenal, but it is, in fact, it's machine learning. And uh, what it's done, I think, is is consolidate a lot of the different ways that we've looked at algorithms and frameworks. And you have linear models and other types of models where uh, now we can think about them in a different type of architecture. Maybe they can be represented as a neural network. So it's all sort of coming together in sort of unifying theories, uh, which allows us to experiment a lot more. And there's a lot more knobs we can turn. Um, but there hasn't been a sort of fundamental breakthrough in the way that we model our world, you know, we're still basically all machine learning is doing is finding correlations in the data. And we've gotten much, much better at some, you know, correlations than others. So it used to be, for instance, you know, vision is, is a great example. You know, it used to be we had to define a lot of the features that we're looking for in order to define correlations. Well, deep learning has enabled us to sort of remove some aspects of that process. Um, but in the end of the day, it's still correlation finding. Uh, we haven't gotten to explanations of causation we don't know anything sort of about why things happen in the real world which is a crucial aspect for decision making and i want to just underscore and stress that so a, a lot of work has gone into improving our ability to find correlations and find patterns and make predictions out of them and that's called supervised learning that's you know most of the things that we see out in the real world production sort of systems are on supervised learning where you have some data you build a model and it's doing well predicting 
Um, but what that ignores is that the world is changing. You, you make certain assumptions about your data, yep. but as the data changes, as the world changes, they're not incorporated in, in a way that actually explains what's going on. So you find spurious correlations. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of good examples uh, of finding correlations that are either biased, you know, ethically, or they're just uh, misrepresentative because we don't know something about a process. Like in medicine, you find two things are correlated, like having one disease and another or having, you know, a successful completion of a, of a medical uh, treatment and, you know, um, the treatment when in fact it's because the doctor was able to see something beforehand or they treat that case differently, which is not representing the data. So um, I, I guess the third point just to underscore is uh, machine learning is only as good as the data that it can represent or the, the sort of how we can model or, or represent that process. And so um, we've come across a few problems where that has meant a lack of trust in machine learning. And I think that's sort of maybe my last point I want to hit with where the opportunity mm -hmm. is, is in AI and uh, it's creating systems that have uh, a, some level of autonomy that empower users um, means that people want to use them. Uh, and there's already been some studies on automation bias where if a system is recommending things, people, you know, uh, there's sort of two ways it can go. If the system is correct, you know, at first and people start to trust it, they're going to basically decrease the cognitive load on themselves yep. and rely on the system more and more. Exactly. And we see that with Amazon reviews, you know, Amazon, uh, yeah, sort of reviews on, on products where, you know, I might not do as much research anymore. I just trust that the people who also bought this or something are, are good. Um, the other way it can go where I think a lot of the sort of enterprise software uh, is um, or the sort of high risk subjective decision making is, is you have a higher bias toward or against the machine. So if in the studies have done have been done on this, where basically a machine and a human make the same amount of errors, uh, you lose confidence in the machine much much quicker than you do in the human. Yep. Where you can explain essentially, and this actually it's a, a fascinating question of why we lose confidence in machines. One of the explanations is we can explain away some of the human error. Well, maybe they weren't having a good day. You know, maybe they were still learning. Whereas with a machine, it's considered a black box. And uh, part of the work that's been going on recently is trying to figure out how we can actually open up that box and explain the level of decision-making that's going in. And the EU ha has recently passed uh, a, a regulation, basically, uh, the General Data Protection Regulation that's going in effect 2018, uh, which is sort of mandating that a decision that's uh, significantly impacting a person, uh, they have a right to an explanation if it's an algorithmic-made decision, uh, which has sort of been a hot topic of debate for, for a lot of companies and how they can actually start explaining what their algorithms are doing because... Um, there's a generally held belief, uh, at least at this point, that there's a trade-off between sort of the modeling and representational power of your algorithm, let's say, uh, you know, a, a very architecturally complex deep learning system, and how explainable it is. So if you have all these complex variables and knobs and things, it's very hard to actually then explain what happened, how that decision was made. So that's a really, really interesting question that we can look forward to in the, in the next couple of years to see how that plays out. Yeah, it'll be very, very interesting to see it play out. Um, I, I, I love what you just shared, <laughs> and it's it's so true. It people, you know, I if you make if you if you make the wrong decision about, and nowadays even though everybody strives for perfection, and there's and in the corporate world there's very very little room for error. Um, you know, we're kind of like we're we're expecting people to kind of like act like machines and machines to act like people. Mm -hmm. um which is really interesting um you know but but if you make a mistake um 
you know, there's that whole emotional aspect of it. Hey, you know, maybe this guy had a really bad day at home, bad day at the office. Maybe there's a family issue. Maybe there's a health issue. Maybe they, who knows, right? Maybe they bid on a house and they lost it and he's distraught for like 24, 48 hours. He should be more professional, but it is what it is. Machine makes it, you lose complete confidence of it and you're calling the vendor and you're requesting a refund. <laughs> right. So, so, exactly. and in reality is, there's there's a there's a deeper issue right and and it's it's well let's let's find out what kind of what kind of soup have you been feeding this beast <laughs> so let's talk about what kind of food you've been given um to to you know to this animal and then i'll I, you know i'll try and explain to you the, the why and the how um Oh, thanks. So it's really interesting and I'm fascinated to see where it goes. Vlad, I have one last question for you before I let you go. Um, sure. You're just a, a, a really busy guy and I, I, we, don't wanna, <laughs> we don't wanna take more time away from you. At least we you. make it seem that way. Uh, no, no, I know you are, I've heard. Um, so uh, from, a, from a professional development standpoint, I always ask every single one of our guests this question. Um, if you met your 15 year old self, uh, what would you tell them? What uh, advice would you give? Yeah, uh, that's always a nice one. It's always nice to be introspective, which mm -hmm. I guess is the first piece of advice I would give mm -hmm. to introspect about what you're actually doing with your life uh, and make sure that you're, you're doing things for the reasons that you want to do them and not somewhere else. Uh, but I guess, you know, in all seriousness, there's sort of, I think, three pieces of advice um, and they're all fairly simple. Uh, which is the first meta piece. So uh, a lot of things that people recommend uh, might sound difficult or complex or convoluted, and some of them are, are super simple. And it takes a while to actually understand how simple, like the simple sentence. Um, you know, you think you understand it the first time you see it or someone says it, uh, but you don't really viscerally feel it and understand it until it actually happens or you go through it and then you're like, oh, that's what that meant. Um, so the first one, so besides those two meta ones, I guess, is, is listen. So I think listening to other people to, uh, you know, basically if you're, you know, in a conversation, listen more than you talk, just try to gather as much, uh, insight and different viewpoints and information as possible. Uh, you know, travel, uh, go to different places, expose yourself to opportunities to listen, uh, because that means that you're going to have a much more grounded and objective viewpoint in order to both empathize with other people and, uh, analyze different situations and, and sort of, that ability to be analytical is crucial, especially in the world going forward that we're just talking about where there's going to be increasing amounts of automation. You yep. know, the ability to analyze for yourself and incorporate in different viewpoints and pieces of information at an increasingly uh, sort of high rate is absolutely crucial. Uh, and then the, the second one, uh, or I guess the fourth one, however we're counting, is ask questions. Don't feel stupid. So I remember uh, very explicitly I was sitting at one of my um, – uh, research uh, sort of experiences for undergraduates that I was doing uh, NSFREU, uh, and I was sitting at um, Johns Hopkins in, in its research lab, and I was making my presentation as an undergrad to the group of, uh, of professors who sort of are, are mentoring that program. And one of them interrupted uh, someone presenting and, and just asked a question that seemed very simple, uh, sort of almost uh, somewhat uh, embarrassingly simple to ask. Uh, and it just clicked in my head like, well, I should be asking questions when I, whenever I feel like there's something I don't understand. There's no reason why I should feel embarrassed or uh, under sort of uh, served by, by showing that I need to know something that I don't. 
So just interrupting to ask questions, uh, whether it makes you feel like people are judging you or not, uh, sort of goes hand in hand with listening. Uh, but it's very empowering uh, because as soon as you, you show that you're asking questions to actually understand and listen, uh, it loses a lot of the uh, taboo I think people place on on sort of um, not knowing. Because I think we have a lot of taboos against you know not knowing something. We all want to be in the know. Uh, you don't want to feel like you're left out. Uh, but the you know the best way of not being left out is is asking. You know the it, you bring up some really fantastic points. One of the pet peeves that I have is when somebody asks me a question about something, and then when I provide them the answer, they respond with, "I know." <laughs> well, if you know, then why yes. did you ask me the question? Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, I, there's <laughs> exactly. nothing. There's not. No, 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 no. And they just keep saying, "I know, I know, no." It's kind of like a nervous yeah. tick, but I know, like, and you're asking to yourself. I mean, um, why did you ask me if you know? Right. I don't. It makes you I, feel like you're wasting your time answering it, their question. Exactly. Um, or, or they were just asking you to irritate you. But at the same time, it's it's all in the art of asking, right? It, mm -hmm. it, I have, you know, you don't, you, you want to ask, you don't want to interrupt at a critical time. So you have to pick your battles. You have to have a high degree of emotional intelligence when you're, when you're asking certain questions or most questions. But when you do so, it's, it's kind of sometimes you start with breadcrumbs and other times you just have to get mm -hmm. you give them the, the, the main dish and you have to be really smart about uh, about doing that um, with most people. I think that there's some people, some really gifted and intelligent people where you can ask them a really complex question at any point in the mm -hmm. conversation and they're fascinated by the fact that you've <laughs> challenged them intellectually in a in yeah. a good way and they'll be like oh this is amazing like i'm totally gonna i'm going to blow your mind with my answer because i have <laughs> so much experience and i'm so passionate about it and and you and you can just see their passion and then there are other people where you you do that they're gonna be completely thrown off uh, mm -hmm. and be like wait wait, wait what yeah. Um, and, and they think that you're just being random when in reality, you're just spotting an opportunity and you're capitalizing on it. So, um, it's really fascinating that you bring, um, that up and that you provide that as, as your, your key advice. I, I second that, um, I felt very insecure growing up about asking questions. So I stayed very, very, very quiet. Cause I felt like if I asked questions, it made me sound really stupid or look really stupid. And, exactly. as, and as I got older and older, I realized that a lot of people actually really appreciate folks that ask questions, not folks that ask a lot of questions, but yeah. ask folks that ask really smart questions. And, That's if right. you're, and if you're able to do that, it doesn't matter when you ask them as long as you ask them. That's right. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. There's an art to asking questions. Absolutely. But it's, it's a crucial, uh, I think, a skill. Yeah, it's a crucial it's a crucial skill. Um and and like, you know, like we mentioned, good questions, not the annoying prickly little questions where you're like, okay, what are you trying to get to? Are you trying to just kind mm -hmm. of like squeeze my brain out of all the goodness and run <laughs> away with it or are you really interested in learning, right? Um, exactly. So that's that's really interesting. Well, Vlad, it's been it's been really a a pleasure. I'm a big fan of Fiscal Node um and um and for those that don't know, uh, 
my former boss, Chris Liu, former uh, U.S. Deputy Secretary of Labor, um, as part of Fiscal Note. So he connected Vlad and I, and uh, and I'm really happy that he did so. You guys have a, a tremendous future ahead of you, and uh, I'll I'll make sure to to closely follow your progress. And uh, welcome back anytime. Thank you. It was awesome uh, being here. All right. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. You too.